Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the 8th chapter of John's Gospel as we move into that 8th chapter this week. And we are met abruptly with a problem. It's interesting that if you read John's Gospel straight through, you find that where we left off last week at, at verse 52 of chapter 7, uh, Jesus is in the tabernacle, or in the temple. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching, and he's being confronted by the Jewish leaders there. And then if you look down in, in chapter 8, verse 12, you find Jesus once again in the tabernacle, once again being confronted by the Pharisees, and, and giving what is considered his second discourse, or his second message, related to um, uh, uh, to the Feast of the Tabernacles there in the temple, talking about them. If, if you're looking at a Bible that is a more modern translation, such as New American Standard, which I preach from, in New American Standard, you'll find some brackets there between verse 53, the beginning of verse 53, and everyone went to his home, and the end of verse 11. And there's a bracket there and a, a footnote that says, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman numbering as in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Uh, some will have a parenthetical note there or have a, a footnote that says that, that these verses are not found in earlier manuscripts. Now, that bothers some people. That, that throws some people in a tailspin. I want you to understand that what they're saying is not, hey, this is not the Word of God. This shouldn't be here. This ought to be, this ought to be done away with. I'll be forgotten. I, I do know people who believe that. It's also not saying, as some modern-day skeptics want to say, well, the Bible's just all wrong. You know, it's been retranslated and rewritten and redone here and there, and it's all wrong. That's not what is being said in those verses. Matter of fact, most scholars that I know and that I have read, uh, I don't put myself among the scholars, but I do read scholars, and most of them will say that this is an authentic story. It just may not have been in the earlier manuscripts of John's gospel at this place. In some of the manuscripts, you find a very similar story in Luke's gospel. As a matter of fact, the wording in this is very Lukean rather than Johannine. Uh, it's more like Luke's way of talking than it is John's way of talking. As a matter of fact, you find there in, in verse 3, I'm going to read the whole thing in a minute, but it says, the scribes and the Pharisees. John rarely ever refers to the scribes and the Pharisees. He usually talks about the religious leaders and the Pharisees, or the chief priest and the Pharisees, or just the Jews, or just the Jewish leaders. Uh, John rarely ever ties, if, if ever, in his writing, these words, the scribes or the teachers and the Pharisees. Luke does that all the time. So it may very well be that somewhere along the way, a story was taken out of Luke in some of the translations, some of the, the transmission of the handwritten Gospels, and interspersed here because they thought it just gave a great illustration of what has taken place being talked about in the temple at the Feast of the Tabernacles in, the first, in, in, verse, in chapter 7 and, and what will follow in chapter 8. There's a great illustration of what this story gives, and I think it really does. The story itself is old. It's found in some older writings, just not necessarily in older manuscripts of John's gospel. Now, if you have a King James Version, you have no notes there. It's just there and smoothly through there, and that's fine. But the reason for that is, is King James Version, when it was translated in 1611, depended on some manuscripts that were later manuscripts. 
Since its translation, there have been earlier manuscripts discovered, many manuscripts discovered since, since that time in various archaeological digs. Uh, over 3,000 manuscripts uh, or partial manuscripts of the New Testament are available, and most of them are in very, very close agreement at all levels. This just hap- doesn't, happens not to appear in many of, of the earlier of John's manuscripts. does not negate the truth of it does not negate the authenticity of it. It just says that in John's gospel it wasn't there. Now, there may be reasons why it's not there. Maybe it was in John's original letter. It was taken out in the first and second and third century for a reason. One of those reasons could have been that the church was in such conflict with pagan idolatry and pagan temples that this 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 story a little bit can, can be misinterpreted if not careful. And, and some have said, some even in our day say, see, see Jesus says fornication and, and, and sexual sin is not all that big a deal. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But if the church was fighting against pagan idolatry that depended so much on fornication for even part of their rituals and part of their rites, it very easily could have been that the early church said, look, we, don't need, we just need to not talk about this one right now and kind of removed it from some of the manuscripts. I I don't know. The truth of the matter is, what I do know is that this has been preserved for us by the Spirit of God and by the wisdom of God, and now we have it here, and it's it's placed in this translation, and and it's placed parenthetically, okay, but it's it's here in John's Gospel, and we're going to look at it because I do think it's authentic, I do think it's important, and I think there's a lot of truth in it that we need to see. Albeit, it is misunderstood, even by our culture. Uh, usually, when, when I'm dealing with somebody and I'm talking with them about sexual sin in their life, or any sin in their life, generally, they love to point to two things. One of them is this story, where it says, Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone, and nobody cast the stone. They all went away, and then Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. And he was without sin. And so they say, see? It's not that big a deal. It's not what Jesus is wanting us to see here. And others quote that favorite verse. It's it's America's favorite verse. If if, if America wasn't so secularized now and could have a national verse, our national verse would be, Judge not that ye be not judged. It's the most used, most quoted verse, and the most misunderstood and misquoted verse in, in all of our country. There's no doubt about it. And so when I'm dealing with people about sin issues, as I am want to do from time to time, they immediately, in defense of their own sinfulness, want to say, but wait a minute, what about the woman caught in adultery? What about the, the verse where Jesus says, don't judge so you won't be judged? How, do you, how are you going to rectify that when you're talking to me about my sin? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit this morning because I think it's very important. Jesus is not minimizing sin. Jesus is not saying sin doesn't matter. Jesus is not saying, hey, it's just a peccadillo, no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not what he's saying. Hear the word of the Lord as I read from John chapter 8, verse 1. Now, that's not a full uh, critical analysis of this text, but I hope it's enough to let you know I believe this is God's word and important to us, okay? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, a lot of people say, well, where's the man? She's caught in the very act. Where's the man? Well, you've got to understand there's a purpose in what the scribes and Pharisees are doing here. They're trying to trap Jesus. This is a trap situation. Okay? They're trying to get him. So they don't want to make the full disclosure of everything here. They just want to get him in a point where they can get him between a rock and a hard place, and he has to, he has to reveal something that they can get him on because that's what they want to do. They want to get him. This is, a, this is a, what they hope is going to be a gotcha moment. You ever, you ever been around people who are always looking for a gotcha moment? I have it all the time. People ask me a question thinking, I know I can catch him on this. And unfortunately, many times they do with me because I'm not as wise as Jesus is, okay? Anyway, they come to him and they say, this woman was caught in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? (laughs) Oh, boy, Jesus, are you going to stand with Moses or are you going to defy Moses? Are you going to stand with the law, or are you going to defy the law? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus did something strange. He stooped down. He stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. But they persisted. They they said again, they kept asking him, and he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. Now, I don't know what he was writing on the ground. If you were hoping I was going to be able to tell you this morning exactly what Jesus was writing, I don't know. The reason I don't know is because the text doesn't tell us what he said. Now, you can find a lot of commentators that make a lot of speculation on what he was writing. Some believe he was maybe writing... He was probably right-handed because he was perfect, I guess. I'm left-handed. But he was probably writing on the ground, uh, some say, the the sins of the people, the the scribes and the Pharisees. He was just one by one listing them off. That that could be. Some say, no, he was writing the 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 tablets of the law. He was writing, you know, the Ten Commandments down there, what Moses had given, the very thing they were challenging him on. He was writing down the the commandments of the law. He was writing down the Ten Commandments that Moses wrote, and and he may have been. I don't know. Some say in the first time he stooped, he was writing the first five, and the second time he stooped, he was writing the second five. I don't know. Maybe he was. One thing is for sure, he was writing something. And he was writing something not just to stall. He wasn't just trying to stall for time. Thinking about, oh, no, what am I going to say now? You know, that's not what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was going to say. I think we do have a little symbolism here that's kind of interesting. If you go back into the, to the, to the Old Testament, back into the, when the giving of the law took place at Sinai, the, the Scripture tells us, Moses tells us, and when he received the law from God on, on Mount Sinai, that God wrote the law what? How did he write it? This is not a rhetorical question. With his fingers, with his finger, he wrote it on the tablets of stone. And now Jesus is, 
in the dust, and, and the tablets were made of stuff that came from the earth, and he's now on the earth, and he's writing. And I think there is some symbolism here that Jesus is saying, listen, the one who wrote the law back then is writing right now. I want you to see this. I, I am the one who wrote the law to begin with. I know what the law says. You're not going to trip me up on the law. I know it better than you do. I, I think there's a, a, a bit of symbolism there. So, who, so he stooped down, he wrote again. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. I think that's an interesting statement there, beginning with the older ones and then the younger ones. They began to see that they did have sin. They began to understand they did have sin. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court, the courtyard in the temple, straightening up. Rising up from the ground where he'd been riding, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, I want you to see the absolute beauty of what Jesus is doing in this particular story. I want you to see the absolute grace that is magnified and demonstrated and and proclaimed here in this. First, I want you to see that there is a horror of sin here. There is the horror of sin. Sin is bad. And Jesus doesn't diminish that one iota in this text. It's not just the fornication. It's not just adultery. It's not just, uh, it's not just sexual sin that's bad. But Jesus is making the point here that all sin is bad. All sin is disobedience to God. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is shaking our, face in the very, uh, our fist in the very face of God and saying, God, I will do it my way. I will have my ideas what will rule my life, not you. I mean, that's what sin is. All sin is bad. And it's horrible. But this particular sin that the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus for was so heinous in the eyes of the law and understanding that the penalty for it was death. The law says, Jesus, this woman caught in the act of adultery, caught in the very act of adultery, should be stoned. Well, it also said the man should be stoned too, and he's not there. So... There's something going on here that is a little chauvinistic, perhaps, a little uh, uh, territorial, a little protecting. Maybe the scribes and Pharisees are trying to, trying to put it at the most difficult light that they possibly can for Jesus. But, but what I want you to see, what I want you to understand, is Jesus is not diminishing sin one iota. Sin is bad. But I want you to see how he just kind of takes control of the situation. He's not going to be backed into a corner. He's not going to be trapped like they would like to trap him. But he just takes control and and he sits down or kneels down and starts to write in 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 the dirt and he's hearing what they're saying. The law says this. The law says that. In the law, Moses were commanded to stone this woman. What do you say? And finally he looks up and he says, well, here's what I say. You're right, the law says that. Whichever one of you 
that is without sin, get it started. We'll all join in maybe, but, but you, the, the one that's here without sin, you have no sin in your life, let her have it. And they all just stand there. They're all perplexed because they recognize that in their own life there is sin. They're not without sin. Now, it's kind of interesting here because the scribes and the Pharisees tended to put up such a front, such a front that, that they really did give the impression to the people around them that they were without sin. You've known people like that, haven't you? I am so holy. I'm so perfect. Don't you wish you could be like me? Well, that's kind of the way the Pharisees were. I mean, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, so much so that, you know, when, he, when he's talking about his own life, he said, listen, I used to be a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Why, as, as, as it were to the law, I was found blameless as other people looked at me. Jesus even said, you know, boy, if you want to be saved, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to come into the kingdom, you, you've, got to have, you've got to be holier than the Pharisees. And I think what he's saying there, you've got to be holier than the Pharisees think they are and want you to think they are if you really want to enter into the kingdom. But he was talking about something far deeper than the false holiness of the Pharisees. So here are these Pharisees, here are these scribes who who want the people to think that they are living the law to the letter. They are living the, every jot and tittle. They, they wouldn't, I mean, they, they don't do anything wrong. They're perfect. They want the people to believe that. And now Jesus, oh, the light, which is what he's going to talk about starting in verse 12. We'll look at next week. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Here is Jesus riding in the dirt saying, listen, if you're without sin, here's the light, the light that is the light that shines in the darkness. Here, here I am. If you're without sin, throw the first rock. And I want you to see that there is a power of conscience here. When the light shines, I, I don't care who it is, I don't care whether they're believer or unbeliever, I don't care if they're if they're religious or, or irreligious, when the light of Jesus Christ shines, there's a prick of conscience. Paul says in Romans that we, the people, even those who reject the truth of the gospel, there is within them a knowledge shown them by the by the general revelation, shown them by the creation. As, as David said in Psalm 19, all, all creation screams the glory of God. And, and, and everybody sees that general revelation. And when the light, the true light, the light that comes into the world, even by those who reject Him, in His day and in our day, when the light shines, there is a pricking of conscience that comes about because it's just, it's inbred there. It's not enough for salvation. It's not enough to bring a person to absolute repentance and, and faith in Christ. But there's something there that just gets real uncomfortable. You saw that this week in, 
in the disinviting of Louis Giglio to pray at the inauguration. My feelings were he never should have accepted it to begin with, but that's a whole other story. But found out that in a sermon he had quoted Scripture of all things that said homosexuality is wrong and that can't be tolerated. Because the darkness wants to, the darkness wants to, com- to compress the light. The, the darkness wants to overcome the light. Can't do it, ultimately, but it will try. And so, and so you have here Jesus shining light. Just, just by his very words. Doesn't, he doesn't say, repent and believe. He doesn't say, okay, you're going to hell if you don't straighten out. He doesn't say anything like that. He just gently says, well, if Let's get this on the road. She's committed adultery. She's sinned. Who's going to throw the first stone? Who's without sin? Get it going for us. And one by one, the crowd diminishes. You got to know they're going away, <clears throat> gritting their teeth. You got to know they're mumbling under their breath. I can't believe he did it again. Can't believe he caught us. We tried to catch him and he caught us. We'll get him yet. We'll get him yet. And they walk away. Jesus looks at her and says, Hmm, who's condemning you? Where are they? Did no one condemn you? Did no one throw the stone? And she said, No one, Lord. Now, I don't know if that Lord there is an acknowledgement by her of who he is, or whether it's just like we would say, no one, sir. I don't know. It's not real clear. But she's seeing something different in this man, no doubt. The light is shining. And Jesus says to her, then I don't condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, that's where you got to see there's no lessening of the sin here. There's no... There's no saying, it doesn't matter. Here's what I think Jesus is wanting you and me to see in this. I think it's very important. We are very apt at seeing sin in other people's lives. Have you noticed that? Man, I can spot sin in your life a mile away. I can spot sin in your life every day that we're around each other. Why, you just come spend an hour with me. I'll come up with two or three. I can spot them. Can't you? You know what I have trouble with? It's confession time. I have trouble seeing sin in my own life. Not because it's not there, but just because I am a master at excusing it. I'm a master at saying, well, that's no big deal. It's not as bad as Todd's or yours. He just happened to be sitting there. It's not as bad. I know it's not as bad as some of those deacons at our church. I know some things. Jesus is saying here, here's the issue. It's not that sin is not serious. It's not that sin is not important. The issue is, you know, get the beam out of your own eye before you start dealing with a speck in the other person's eye. Doesn't mean you don't deal with it. Doesn't mean I won't come to you and say, you know, you need to, there's some things going on here that you need to be careful of. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean we won't do that, 
but it does mean that when I come, I really better be sure that I've examined my own heart, I've examined my own life, I've let the light shine on me. That's why I wanted Scott to read that passage out of Psalm 139 this morning. Because there David is. David's talking that psalm about the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the, the creative power of God. He formed us in our mother's womb, all those kind of things uh, you know, that he, I had him skip over because I wanted this, this part about he knows us. He knows our rising up and our laying down. He knows our coming in and our going out. He knows everything about us. But then David at the very end says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Wait a minute, David, you just said in the first part of this psalm, he knows everything about you, and he does. There's nothing you've got in your life that's hidden from God. You need to know that right now. Nothing in my life is hidden from God. I can hide it from you, but I can't hide it from him, no doubt. But there's a difference in knowing that God knows and somehow faking it. And, and what Jesus is saying here is, you who are in me, you who have believed, you who have trusted me, listen, don't fake it. And so David comes to the end of that psalm and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Try me and know everything about me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in accordance with your will. Lead me in accordance to the truth. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, here's how we're to approach God. We don't just approach him and say, Lord, I know you know everything about me. But you approach him and say, Lord, I want you to not only know everything about me, but I want my life to be an open book. I want my heart to be an open heart. I don't, I don't just want to know that you know. I want, to, I want you to know that I know you know, and I want you to point that out to me. I want you to shine a, a searchlight into my heart, not for your information, Lord, but that I might know it. That I might know it. That I might see it. And I so want to hear the word of the Savior to the sinner over and over and over again in my life. As I come to repentance, as I come to confession, as, as I live that as a lifestyle, as Luther said that every Christian should live a life of repentance, not just repent once. But I, I come to him and, and I, I, I hear him say, I didn't come into the world to condemn you. I came into the world to save you. I didn't come into the world to crush you. I came into the world to give you life. Now you've seen your sin. You know your sin. Now get up and get out and sin no more. Put that sin aside. In, in this woman's case, the sin of adultery, sin of fornication. Sometimes that's a word that has left our vocabulary pretty much even in churches, fornication. I know you with small kids now are going to have to go home and define that for them. That's your problem, not mine. Uh, we use other things like premarital sex or extramarital sex uh, relations. You know, and that's not it's fornication. It's adultery. Those just sound bad. So we kind of want to clean them up a little bit. This woman committed adultery. This woman was guilty of sin. And Jesus said, I'm not condemning you. He could have. 
I'm without sin, but I came to be a sin offering, and I'm telling you, now repent, turn away from that sin, go and sin no more. That's all we ever hear about this woman. We, we don't, you know, I want to hear the rest of this. I want Paul Harvey to come in here. I want to hear the rest of the story. She went and, and became, you know, a, a servant in the house of the Lord or something. I mean, I don't know. I, I want to I want to hear about, and, and maybe she did follow him after this. Maybe she was one of those women who are a name that was there to, to care for Jesus and the disciples. I don't know. But I know this. That woman, in her encounter with Jesus, left different from the way she was brought in. Do you believe that? It's always that way. Whenever one encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, we never leave the same way we came in. We never leave like we were because those words resonate. Those words are strong. I have come to give you life. I didn't come to condemn you. I'm not condemning you at this point. I'm calling you to life. I'm giving you life. From now on, go out from here. Get out of here. Live your life, but live it without this sin complicating it. Don't look around and see how much sin you can change in other people's lives. Don't look around and see how many sins you can count in other people to make you feel better about yourself. Don't think if I can spot some sins in the preacher's life, and you can. You, you can. If I can spot some sins in the preacher's life, then maybe I can, <clears throat> I can say, well, I don't do that. No matter what I do or what somebody else does, it's not a matter of how others are walking with the Lord. It doesn't matter what the Lord's doing in their life. The question always comes back is, what is God doing in your life? What is the light shining in your life leading you to get up and go forth and sin no more? That's the simple question. And I think that's what Jesus is asking here. That's what he's asking you. That's what he's asking me. I came to give you life. I came to give you meaningful life. And, and his words to the sinner are life-giving. They're strengthening. They're never saying sin doesn't matter. But they are saying be sure, be sure you're looking in the right direction. Be sure you're examining yourself. Be sure you're crying out to God as David did. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. Because as a man thinks, so is he. What comes off the lips that are said originates in the thoughts. Lord, search me and know my heart. Search me and know my thoughts. And lead me to obedience in your way. Can you pray that this morning? Can you, can you just open yourself up, not to me, not to your wife or your husband or your friend or somebody sitting near you? No, can you open yourself up to the Lord this morning and just say, Lord, I don't want to be like those Pharisees. I, I don't want to be like those scribes that, that feel themselves so self-righteous and so self-holy. Lord, I want to be holy 
by your holiness. I want to be righteous by your righteousness that is your gift to me from the cross. Lord, search me. Show me my hypocrisy. Show me my sin. Lord, lead me in your way. Lead me in your will. Lead me in your truth. Let's pray. Father, we are that woman. It may not be the same sin, but it may be spiritual adultery, Lord, where we have just gone after idols. And spiritual adultery is just as devastating as physical adultery. Lord, it may be that We don't want to think about ourselves as being that woman, but we are that woman. And Lord, we need a touch of your grace to bring us to repentance. We need a a healthy dose of your light to search us and show us. And then we need to hear your mercy, Lord. Get up. Go out of here, and by my grace, sin no more. Father, what a glorious thought and a glorious truth. What a phenomenal story to show your sufficiency, to show your power, to show your love, to show your grace, to show your loving kindness and mercy. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. I, I pray, Lord, that you will bring men and women to faith in Christ today. Lord, they will hear that, that voice and see that light and fall before you and confess you as Lord in repentance to rise up and go forth by your grace. Father, we sing this hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. How powerful. How powerful a thought that our debt is to your mercy because of what you have done. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.